Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love people who love cats and dogs, which is why I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, and the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. Every week, I bring you conversations with experts and authors who share our fascination with the animals in our world. This program originated and continues for the 13th year on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. There is a podcast library with more than 700 previous shows at RadioPetLady.com, along with my other pet talk shows like Cat Chat and Good Dogs. This show is made possible in part with the support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company that makes high-protein recipes for cats and dogs. The show is also brought to you with the generosity of Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, a privately owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. Today's guests are Leslie Granger, the CEO of Bidewee, talking about the great galas they're going to be having to celebrate all their great adoption work and them being the beneficiaries of the Dog and Cat Film Festivals. Jeff Burton will be here with his new cadaver dog mystery, The Keepers. And Dr. Jose Arce will be here, the new AVMA president, talking about the Healthy Dog Importation Act. Well, this is pretty exciting because Bidewee, really the oldest dog and cat shelter, certainly on the East Coast, maybe in the world, is now the official beneficiary of both the Dog Film Festival and the Cat Film Festival, the the Feline um, Coalition being part now of Bidewee, where before it was part of the Mayor's Alliance. But even cooler is the two fabulous parties that Bidewee is hosting for themselves uh, to celebrate themselves and the incredible job they've done for all these more than 100 years, as well as during the pandemic, and continuing to do. And I have the pleasure of having their CEO, Leslie Granger, here to talk about it and brag a little bit. Leslie, are you in bragging mood? I'm absolutely in bragging mood today and every day as always about Bidewee. That's pretty great. And how about the day you opened the shelter doors, August 3rd, after having done the adoptions right through the pandemic on on, on appointment? And what happened on, on August 3rd when you said, come one, come all? They came, didn't they? <laughs> they came. There was a line out the door before we even opened the doors. You know, it was it was really exciting. It was it was truly a testament to people still wanting to adopt those dogs and cats. Yeah. And just really wanting the feeling of the feel good feeling in a place like Bidewee, not in all shelters, where when you come in, it is a happy place. I think that's important, both the one in Manhattan and and the one in West Hampton, which is particularly beautiful. It's a happy place. I, I, I always worry that people think, oh, I couldn't go to a shelter. It's so depressing. Talk a little bit about the experience if you come to Bidewee just to, to, to look around. Maybe you just wind up volunteering. But what about if you, you come looking for a pet? It's so funny you say that, Tracy, because throughout my years in animal welfare, I've always said there is really nothing better than being a dog or a cat at at Bidewee than except for maybe being a dog or cat that ends up going to their forever home from Bidewee because it really is truly a happy place. You don't see sad puppies and sad kitties. They know that they're safe finally. There's a feeling there that they really do know. And to come in, to, to look around, to to become a volunteer or to become a forever adopter for one of our dogs or cats. It's really, it's a special experience. Our, our team does uh, everything in their power, not only to find out from you what, what would add to your lifestyle, what type of cat, what type of dog would work well with your family, but they already know the personalities of the dogs and the cats that they, that they are working to match. And that's why we call, you know, our adoption center staff 
are matchmakers because nice. that's what they're doing. They're making nice. a match. And that, and that comes, I, I would guess you being the, you know, the buck stops with you, so to speak. It must be a feeling that emanates from the head, from you, which is we got to take the time. We got to find the resources, take the time to find out who these animals are, to put them in situations and see what works for them or what, or what, or what hits a trigger in them and makes them unhappy? Another dog, a child, a cat, or does that be something they want to be around? And a lot of shelters, so many shelters, certainly in more impoverished areas, but even ones that, for whatever reason, aren't being run at their optimum, there is more of a sense of warehousing, you know, just feed them, yeah. clean them, uh, try and get them out the door, rather than who is this dog or cat? And hello, person, who are you? I think that's right, a really important right. part of doing it well. It really is. And we're lo- very, very lucky, um, I would say, to have an incredible behavior staff um, at Bidoe that takes the time to really evaluate the needs of every animal that comes through our doors. And not only that, but but one of the silver linings of the pandemic was our growth in the number of foster families that came out of the woodwork. I mean, the first week of the pandemic, 700 foster applications came Are through. Are you kidding you know, me? It was, I am wow. not kidding. It was incredible. And so what we were able to do is get such a, a large portion of our animals out into fosters. And, you know, the thing is, no matter how good the shelter, an animal is always going to react differently in a home. For sure. You know, they're really going to show their true colors. And so we're able, our foster team works so closely and our behavior team works so closely with the fosters to understand what are you seeing? What kind of behavior? What are their likes, their dislikes? So that we can match that animal to the right family. And it just has been such a blessing in so many ways. And we're going to continue to grow that program because you just get a better feel for the animal's true behavior. And the other good thing, I think, is that, you know, there was a lot of talk around the the early parts of COVID. Well, people are just going to buy a dog, get a dog one way or another, whether adopt or buy. But when the pandemic is over and the people are released from their from their, you know, institutionalization mm-hmm. in their own home, they're not really going to want it anymore. They won't know what to do with it. They won't have prepared it for their being gone. Whereas a foster, it, they really know that they're an intermediary. And maybe some of them wind up being failed fosters, which is, you know, the industry word for those who won't give back their foster and keep it forever. But mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. that gave you some peace of mind to not worry that people were just in a kind of emotional knee-jerk taking in a dog or a cat when they really didn't have it on their horizon and then maybe you know not knowing what to do when their life went back to if our lives ever go back to some kind of normal did you appreciate the foster program and that option even more given the the rapidity of the the lifestyle change for everyone oh 100% and I think you know some of our best fosters were you know, fosters that we knew once life got back to, you know, in air quotes, normal, um, would not be there as That's fosters right. necessarily because we had, you know, one of our best fosters was um, an airline attendant who... I'll be darned. She was grounded. You know, she was grounded indefinitely at the time. And she said, look, this is what I can do now. And she knew That's she cool. wouldn't be able to once she went back to flying. That's really but, cool. You know, also, we haven't seen, you know, I know there have been reports out there, but I don't know how database and fact-based it is because I have not seen nor have the colleagues I've been speaking to seen this inundation to shelters of pandemic puppies being returned. We just have not had that data and, and that experience. And and nor have have my colleagues necessarily seen that. So and that's it, good news. That's good news. But I also, for myself, have always thought those sort of soundbite news things are specious. I mean, says who? Yeah. Based on what? It's like mm-hmm. saying, "Oh, all these dogs and cats are going to have separation anxiety." Well, you know, the cats are doing a happy dance. Get the humans out of here. Give me some space. Give me some privacy. <laughs> yeah, Go back to work, it. you people. <laughs> and the dogs are like, "Okay, I can cope." You know, give me. Me a puzzle box. Uh, make sure somebody gets me out and exercises me. I think we we over. Uh, I, sometimes the news media, the the news cycle, just needs something 
to say. But the pet industry, oh, the number of things, pandemic, you know, separation anxiety. I've always said the separation anxiety is the people. Honestly, it's not the dogs. The people don't want to be separated from their dogs. And so they come up with all this sort of projected emotion. While we still have time, I want to make sure that we talk about these two incredible balls, the one you have in New York, both of them being outdoors that are that are, I don't know, all of your followers, sponsors, uh, donators are all lining up. They've already sort of snapped up an awful lot of the tickets. But talk about these outdoor canine-friendly balls and their dinners with auctions. I mean, they're really glamorous. A lot of trouble when it, time and effort went into it. But just talk about them briefly. The one on September 9th is Thursday um, in New York City, but the Saturday, September 18th is out at Duckwalk Vineyards which is great right. for anybody on the island. So what we did when, you know, like everybody else in, in 2020, our biggest fundraising event of the year, which takes place in June, was obviously canceled. Right. Um, and we used to, you know, raise more than $700,000 for Yikes. our organization and for the work we do wow. to rescue dogs and cats. And so it was really devastating to us to lose that. And this year... You know, we looked at things that how could we possibly do something that wasn't on Zoom or virtual, but potentially be together in some way and 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 create an event that mimicked where we are. So where we have a, an adoption center in Manhattan, we have one out in West Hampton. So what we wanted to do was do two smaller events that were outdoors gave us the best chance of hopefully having them. We were going to plan them. Let's hope we can do them safely. Um, Do them smaller, do them outdoors and give people what they, you know, they're able to come celebrate, you know, their, their animal and, and their love of animals in general help by the rescue more dogs and cats. And at the same time, be outside safely and enjoying other people who enjoy the same thing and are passionate about saving animals as well and come together to do more for, for the animals. And so we're really excited where we have our first event, which is a cocktail evening from six to nine at city vineyard um, in Manhattan. And it's outdoors. It's a gorgeous venue. It's on the water. Wow. It's right across from a gorgeous dog park in Manhattan and it's dog friendly. People can bring their dogs. We've done all of our galas through the years have been dog friendly, which sort of sets us apart. They're fun. People love getting their dogs dressed up. Yeah, they do. Um, it's, it's a fun evening for yes. sure. And then um, we have some raffle prizes, auction. Uh, it's going to be a really wonderful night. I think just after so much, everybody's been through so much. It's nice to come together with a common passion. Yep, definitely. And it's at Pier 26, which is also part of where they hold part of the dog show when they have the dog show. So it's a really cool area. And I think I've been into a dog adoption fair there once. It's very neat. If you haven't been to that part of the city, it's pretty spectacular. It's it's not it what really it, is. Yeah, it doesn't feel at all like Manhattan. It feels like another time and place. And Duckwalk Vineyards is magnificent in Watermill. Oh, what a beautiful venue in Watermill. And we're so excited. You know, it was it was a little challenging finding a venue out in the Hamptons on a weekend because apparently everybody who couldn't get married in 2020 has decided to get oh, married of course. out there. Yes. Uh, so we we ended up being able to secure Duck Walk, which is one of the most beautiful vineyards out there. And we're going to have an open tent outdoors overlooking the vineyard. We'll have some music. We're going to have a live auctioneer. We're going to do fabulous live auction prizes. Just a beautiful night in September in the Hamptons. Again, you know, to get together with people who have the same passion, you know, about rescuing animals. And I think it's just going to be a really, really nice evening. It's going to be really fun. And it'd be really fun if any of the people that came to those events 
wanted to come to the now, especially the cat people, because I'm sure all of your cat fosters and cat donors and cat adopters are like, yeah, great, canine friendly balls. Yeah, you have one more of those and we're going to scratch your eyeballs out. At least we have the cat <laughs> film festival. It's hard for the cat people. We're sorry. We don't actually want you to stress your cats and try to dress them up and bring them somewhere. You know, there's one main coon cat out of a million that says, I would like to come, but, you know, for the rest of them, it's no thank you, ma'am. So, it's- Well, for the cat people, I do want to say we have this fabulous DJ who will be at our cocktail party in Manhattan, who is a very recent Spidey cat adopter. He Aww. adopted a little orange tabby named Sunny, who was left at Bidewe in a bucket, in a closed bucket. Oh, and this on. cat has more Instagram followers in a week than, <laughs> than I have in 10 years. Uh, it's just, you know, a rags to riches story for this for this kitty. And it's one of the most wonderful. That's great. That's great. So the cat, the cat lovers will have um, Sonny's dad as the DJ. For, DJ, for DJ our, bright uh, light, bright light. For those of you that follow DJ names, Th- that's really cool. But you also have the cat film festival. So we do the cat film festival is on global cat day, which is Saturday, October 16th. And it's in the city. Um, on the Lower East Side for the first time in a really fabulous historic theater. And it will benefit uh, the Feral Cat Initiative, which used to has always been the beneficiary of the Cat Film Festival all four years in New York. But when the Mayor's Alliance folded because they did such a good job, they were smart. They handed over the, the reins of that to Bideway. So a lot of good is being done all the time for feral cats, cat communities, TNR, and it's nice that everyone can come together. I don't really have to pitch it at all because the Cat Film Festival always sells out. And people have been writing for months. The dog people, they have more choices. You know, they have more things to do. So they're on. A, they're actually at the beginning of Saving Senior Dogs Week, which is the other beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival throughout the country, along with Bideway in New York City. And Saving Senior Dogs Week kicks off. We kick it off on October 24th, which is a Sunday. And you guys already know it's two hours of short films celebrating, in one case, dogs and the other case, cats. And it's pretty spectacular and another way for people to come together and share their communal love for dogs and cats. Leslie, we've run out of time. You've got to run because you have all these parties to get dressed for. Oh, my God. Never (laughs) mind all the other stuff. Leslie has to look good. Take so many pictures of you. Why you, you worry about these things? You've got to find the right dog and cat. Well, no cat, right dogs to pose with. I think what you're doing is terrific. What Bidewee has done to keep their little paws above water and their snout above water throughout all this is well worth celebrating as much as possible at both the balls, September 9th and September 18th. Obviously, at Bidewee.org, you can find out more. And in the meantime, do stop by. I think the line has thinned out a little. So certainly in West Hampton, it's a really nice way to spend an hour or two. Go visit the dogs and cats. And I I dare you to go home empty-handed. Leslie, thank you so much for being here and everything you're doing all year long for the dogs and cats. Oh, thank you, Tracy. And thank you for everything you're doing. By the way, and all of us and our four-legged and cats and dogs all appreciate you. So you're, thank you. You're very kind. This show is supported in part by Meet Me, a privately owned farm in Virginia that makes raw frozen foods and dehydrated treats for cats and dogs using animals raised on their own farm. This show is also brought to you by Merrick Pet Food, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago where they are still making natural pet food. Jeff Burton has done it again. Another cadaver dog mystery. He was here with the finders. He's back with a Mace Reed canine mystery number two called The Keepers, as in Finders Keepers. It's great. And who knew a golden retriever could be a working dog? I thought they were just there to love you to death. Jeff, congratulations (laughs) on this wonderful book and on introducing so many different ways to look at dogs because golden retrievers really are generally not working dogs the way Vera Vera is, right? I mean, it's unlikely. 
Yeah, you're right. Uh, first off, thanks for having me here. And, um, you know, I had to kind of noodle a little bit for, okay, I want to have the main dog. I didn't want her to be like, um, you know, the kind of dogs that have the reputations for kicking butts and yes, taking names yes, like a, yes. like a pit bull or a Doberman pincher or German right, shepherd. Right. Um, even though those dogs are all great human remains detection dogs, but they have the reputation and, um, and, you know, that wouldn't, it wouldn't be a suspenseful for the reader if uh, Mace Reed, the protagonist, was going around with a, a pit bull, even though the, you know, pit bulls get a bad reputation. My neighbor's got a pit bull. It's a wonderful dog. And they're great. And they're, they're very determined. So, I mean, if they had a job like being taught to be a cadaver dog, it'd be great. But it's not just the golden right. retriever who's a surprise. It's also the, the short haired collies and i'm wondering about these farm collies you bring them in and i know it's got to be i mean you just never hear anybody mention a farm collie and you've got a pair of them in the book that are working dogs i wonder is this because you personally have had a wonderful experience with one you know i i haven't i know when i i wanted to have a good mix of what really makes good sniffer dogs and you know i mean there's you've got kind of like the um Probably, you know, you've got a bloodhound at the top and basset hounds and, and, and collies are, are great. And um, I actually, I have a, um, I've got a beagle who's sleeping right next to me and, and they're fantastic. Um, Very good. Very, I mean, they, they yeah. hunt in packs, you know, in the old fox hunting days, a whole pack of them would go out and you'd have all those noses at work. At once. In fact, the AKC actually has obedience trials where beagles hunt in packs as part of a a competition. You know, I I don't have uh, my main character's patience, but it's always (laughs) fun when I go for a walk because I'll see a rabbit like run across the trail, you know, maybe 40, 50 yards ahead of us. And then I'll just count down till we get there. And then my beagle starts going crazy. Oh, he, okay, it went here. It went over there. You know, he can, yes. can kind of air scent. Um, and, um, I mean, it's, it's really kind of crazy. I mean, um, bloodhounds, some, some breeds like bloodhounds have 300 million scent receptors in their nasal cavity. And you and I, Tracy, we only have like um, 5 million and I was trying it, I don't know, the other day I was just kind of making a list of, you know, we've kind of evolved away from the sense of smell. And I'm like, well, popcorn in a theater, <laughs> um, you know, if the, if the neighbors are burning leaves and maybe, maybe if the neighbor's having a barbecue. And, but I got into kind of the lower double digits before I'm like, oh, that's about it. Yeah, that's about it for <laughs> us. But I didn't know that bloodhounds had more receptors than other dogs. I just knew that many dogs have many receptors. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, a lot of the ones that are um, make for good sniffer dogs, you know, um, bloodhounds, basset hounds, and German shepherds, you know, they're, they're up there. But I think, I think the bloodhounds are probably, you know, I'd hate to say they're the ones that um, – that have the most. I mean, maybe my beagle has three hundred million. Yeah, but, um, I don't think I don't think one I don't think one breed of dog has more receptors than another has, breed of dog. There may be right. some that have fewer, where we've bred them to the point where their face is so smashed they don't have much of a nose, which is right, different. But you, you know, do have a puppy bo- yeah, bloodhound in in the book. I, I mean, do. the 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 guy has a whole Mace has a whole pack of dogs that he's got in various stages of training. Or there's Sue, the retired German Shepherd male, right. who just mostly guards the couch at this point, right? <laughs> yeah, he's he's kind of taken early retirement after something that happened in, in the finders. And so he's kind of the patriarch and kind of the alpha male, and he's got a very strident view of life and things have to be his way. And then we've got... Um, We've got the Collies, um, Maggie May and Delta Dawn, and, and, and they're just, they're a fun bunch. And Mace kind of puts it like they, they try to gaslight them now and again. Try yes, to it's drive very them. funny. It's very funny yeah. the way he, it, it, you have a great way with words and a great way with oh, metaphors in that really hard-boiled detective sense. Very funny. There's lots of, lots of laugh out louds when you make analogies and metaphors that are delightful to s- sort of set the scene, but especially when... It's 
he interacting mentally with his dogs and wondering oh, what they're thinking you. or what they're up to. It's it's really it is definitely delightful. Before I ask you to read um, mm-hmm. the, from the prologue so that people get a sense of the style and the, the, the tone of the book, which I think is a lot of what makes a, a novel mystery or otherwise so so engaging. What about Chicago? I mean, Chicago is a character in this book. It's set in Chicago. Is that where you're from originally, although now you're a Minnesotan? Um, you know, it's it's kind of, for years, it was kind of my wife and I, the, the plane tickets used to be really cheap, and yeah. my sister had lived there, and my wife used to do a lot of trade shows, and I'd be able to piggyback on her per diem. I'd be able to stay in the hotel. Right. And then at mealtime, she'd order the sampler and the, you know, the steak and lobster and tell the waiter to bring two plates. <laughs> and, you know, she'd have to go to work. And I'd go down to the trade show because I love getting, you know, squeeze balls and little weird keychains and right. all that. And then I'd, I'd, I'd be able to go around and go to Shedd Aquarium or Navy Pier and just kind of goof around. And we... um. For a long while, we were uh, flying in and checking out shows or a baseball game, and so I kind of got to know Chicago. Never, never lived there myself, but when I was um, thinking of writing the book, I thought, okay, it's it's a lot bigger, um, you know, than Minneapolis, St. Paul, and right. and it's got such a um, infamous history, which I kind I kind of go into in yes, the keepers a little you bit do. of certainly yeah certainly an interesting history yeah and I, and um, you do bring that in a lot i mean you obviously have a fascination with the city and a and a feel for it it's always nice when a when a book is set in a place and it's really of the place and i would say you've you've really captured it and it doesn't really well, matter thanks. whether you were there as a visitor or born and bred because sometimes a visitor with a good eye can tell you more about a place than, than somebody who's from the place, right? Yeah, and, and I'm um, I'm goofy. I could probably churn books out quicker, but I'm a, I'm a research geek. Yes, that's and clear. So There's so much detail I, and so much information in a good way. Yeah, and I know, you know, even though there's a lot of stuff that I, I, I don't use, but I really wanted to, you know, kind of give – give the audience a taste for human remains detection dogs and how the training is. So, you know, I did a lot of research, but I didn't want to um, have the book come to a halt where they read a 10 page essay. Right. Right. So I, you know, so I tried to, um, tried to kind of just pepper it in here and there through Mace's point of view. You did that really um, well because it's true. Well, thank Every you. so often there's a, a nugget of information and then on we go with the story. Well, why don't you jump right in from the prologue because okay. then you don't have to give any background other than the fact that HRD means human remains detection. So when you say HRD pups, it's human remains detection dogs. Okay. And I'm going to read a piece of um, the prologue and it kind of is a bit of a flashback from last summer. My name is Mason Reed. I go by Mace, and I specialize in human remains detection. That is, I train dogs to hunt for the dead. My HRD pups and I help the authorities, the Chicago Police Department and various sheriff departments, in their searches for the missing and presumed dead. In fact, I've knighted Vira and my pack of cadaver dogs, the finders, and would have that imprinted on business cards had my kids opposable thumbs in which to hand them out or pockets in which to place them. It was quarter to four when I parked my F-150 a couple city blocks shy of the address the sergeant had provided. The streets were littered with fire engines for pumping water and chemical flame retardants, as well as fire trucks for hauling ladders and rescue gear. A line of squad cars and an ambulance or three idling, empty. There were more flashing lights than on bingo night at Caesars Palace. My wake-up call had informed me that CFD... Chicago Fire Department had spent a chunk of the night fighting a warehouse blaze in the Fulton River District, which is situated on the border of Chicago's downtown and considered part of the near west side. Excuse me. The area had once been known for transportation and industrial warehousing, but had, in recent decades, like many other quarters in the Windy City, turned residential. Sue, my alpha male of a German shepherd, and Delta Dawn, my farm collie, and I threaded our way around local news vans, cameramen, and huddling reporters as we came upon a white-haired man standing next to a fireman. 
Both stared fixedly as the crew of firefighters finished hosing down the burnt-out warehouse through a haze of smoke and steam, ash and soot. How long has it been vacant? The fireman, whom I took to be a lieutenant or captain, asked. Two years, Whitehair, whom I took to be the warehouse owner, replied. A company that shipped aluminum rented the spot for 20 years before going under. You got a homeless problem? Once a space that size go goes empty, he nodded toward the smoldering facility. You'd have to live here around the clock to chase out any transients. Whitehair shrugged. I call the cops now and again. Our trio continued onward with Sue, as always, in the lead, and ID'd ourselves through a series of officers acting as sentries. The scent of smoke hung, hung heavy in the air. I found myself blinking the grime from my eyes every couple of seconds, wishing I'd brought along a quarter to a visine. As we approached, I could tell from what remained of the structure, ruins to be more accurate, that the inferno had been devastating. The place resembled old newsreel footage of Berlin in 1945, and I wondered if some kind of electrical or lighting or heating equipment had triggered a flame that soon met with combustible materials. I spray a protective film on all my dog's feet in order, dog's feet in order to protect and toughen their pads and paws. I hope the darn stuff works. I wasn't worried about the hot, hot concrete as the facility had been doused in an ocean of water. I was more concerned with any smoldering or sharp debris my pups might step on. Once we advanced to the front line, we were instructed to hold our horses as another 40 minutes passed until the fire commissioner himself gave the all clear for us to enter and search for human remains in the wreckage of the burnt out facility. By daybreak, Sue, Delta, and I had worked our way through the scorched remnants of the Fulton River District Warehouse. The kids, as though working in unison, had led me to the northeast corner, opposite from where we'd been allowed to enter. It had taken my dogs all of five minutes to weave and wind around the soaked and steaming wreckage, leading me around twisted metal, busted rubble, and blocks. Delta tapped at the wet concrete in front of her with a single paw, while Sue just stared back at me pawing at the ground was beneath him. I flagged a handful of firemen over and, as they pushed aside the blackened debris, they uncovered charred human remains. It's a great beginning because it is just a beginning because so much else happens and there's so many other issues and complications that come up once they try to get to the bottom of things. But it's wonderful how how the character calls his dogs his kids and his and his family and his pups. It's, it's very homey, maybe more so than we imagine for somebody working with a working dog. You think they'd have to maintain a kind of professional distance, but, but Mace doesn't do that at all, does he? No, no. And, and I had a lot of fun bring, bringing, um, Bill, Bill, the bloodhound into it. Um, the puppy. you know, I mean, the puppy, he's he's not quite there to start training. So if you know, you see things through his big, wide, innocent eyes yeah. and and he's he's got a um you know, dogs instinctually just to kinda cover their scent will sometimes roll and stuff, but Bill Bill takes this to the next level. I think I think Mace has kind of also named him Bill the Roller because whatever kind of <laughs> stinky goo he can find, he'll he'll throw himself into with great bliss, forcing uh Mace to almost have to run a car wash to keep him, <laughs> spray him, spray him down a few times a day. Yeah, it does seem that that is his proclivity. Is your beagle like that? You know, he's got a spot in the backyard. He's got one spot that for some, I, I, I went running over there thinking, oh, Lord. Is something um, dead? But there's there's nothing really there. My dogs and do that for, too. They will throw themselves down. They'll sniff and almost rub their face in whatever this spot is that looks invisible to us. It's not like something huge and gross and foul. And then they will just like the puppy in the book. They will just roll and roll and roll. And they stand up and you're thinking, oh, do I have to get out the scrub brush? And you don't. So it, well, you, it goes yeah, back to the I, mystery I of, of what do they smell? What do they smell? I mean, I, I had, we've got a big backyard with a privacy fence and kind of a ravine around the house. But I had an Australian shepherd um, years ago that made a break for it and ran around the street a little bit till I was out of um, eyesight. I, I swear it was gone less than a minute and then came running back stinking of, <laughs> I have no idea how... 
how he found it that fast. <laughs> how, how he somehow, maybe the sense of smell, um, was able to find it, roll in it, hear her name, and come running back, and then. Good obedient dog me. came home to a yeah. came home to a shampoo. <laughs> came well, home to a shampoo. <laughs> too funny, um, Jeff. We've run out of time, but The Keepers okay. is such a fun fun book, an interesting book, an informative book, and and a great page turning summer mystery, fall, fall mystery. What it's just great. So congratulations. I'm sure there's another Mace Reed canine mystery up your sleeve. But in the meantime, we will all get great pleasure from this one. Thanks a lot, Tracy. Thanks for having me. A great pleasure. This show is also brought to you by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two women who make cooked dog food frozen in pouches shipped directly to your home. This show is also supported by Earth Animal Holistic Pet Wellness Products, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein. I am so delighted to, I hope, be probably the first member of the media to welcome the newest president of the American Veterinary Medical Association, the first Latino president, Dr. Jose Arce, in Puerto Rico. Sir, congratulations on what I'm sure is a great honor, but also going to be a bit of a pain in the neck because you're going to have to talk to people like me in addition to looking after all the animals in the clinic that you and your wife, who's also a veterinarian, have in Puerto Rico. So congratulations and welcome. Thank you, thank you, and thank you for having me. It is an honor to be in your program. Well, you're nice to say that. I, one of the reasons that I was going to be talking to you is about the Healthy Dog Importation Act that's going through, I don't know, the legislature in America. And it, it's important because I've been very concerned about dogs being imported into the U.S., particularly from the Eastern European countries, also from Taiwan, China, and I don't even know where else, not because the dogs are necessarily sick, which they might be since the press release says only 1% of dogs imported into the, into the uh, U.S. are even checked for rabies or other, other diseases. I'm concerned about how these dogs are created, what kind of background they come from in terms of them being from puppy mills or dog farms or whatever you want to call it. But I think it's more interesting to talk about Puerto Rico and to talk about the perception of dogs and cats in Puerto Rico, the way they're perceived, the way they're handled or mishandled, and the incredible community of saviors who look after them in their own homes, in their own backyards, even on what's unfortunately called Dead Dog Beach, and probably bring a number of them to real veterinary clinics like the one that you and your wife have. Do you think that there's a negative perception of the dog culture in Puerto Rico? Uh, there's sort of there is some there is some, and I think a lot of it is from misinformation or or exaggeration. We I've lived in Louisiana, I've lived in Massachusetts, and now I've been living in Puerto Rico since 1998. And I can tell you the quality of veterinary medicine is is as good as it yes. is in both of those states. Mm -hmm. And you know we, you have great people rescuing animals and, and doing making a difference. And then you have, you know, uh, people who are not the most responsible pet owners and, you know, might, might get a dog and, or a cat and they relinquish it and let it go. And, and that's part of the education and, and part of the responsibility that comes with my position and, and, and that also the governments have, uh, you know, to, to help uh, educate the public on what responsible pet ownership is and all the responsibilities that come with acquiring a pet. Uh, whether it's vaccination, food, water, you know, a safe place to live, right. uh, all those things. And and I can tell you that when I lived in Louisiana uh, and when I live now in Puerto Rico, I see, you know, people who do an excellent job and, and treat their animals like kings and queens and they treat their animals better than they treat themselves. And I see other people that uh, don't, don't, don't take the responsibility like it should. And it has nothing to do with money because I can tell you that, you know, very rich people are very responsible. Some very rich people are, are not good pet owners, and very poor people are excellent uh, pet owners and, and do everything possible for the pet. So I think it's just just understanding, you know, what what encompasses being uh, a, a dog owner, and that's a responsibility for life. Just like we're not gonna, you know, have a, a child or adopt a child and then you know throw it on the streets. You know, uh, that is the same with a pet. You know. Pets are part of our families. Uh, pets are not what 
used to be maybe you know 30 40 years ago that the yogi used to be in the backyard and maybe you you would feed him a couple of times a day and say hi and some of them were security of the, of the house now 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 pets are, are an integral part of the family and and we know the benefit of living with pets you know people that live with pets live longer live healthier lives well, I, I think one of the things that in terms of misinformation about Puerto Rico is that and the dog cat situation is that in my New York Dog Film Festival, I've had a number of really moving and wonderful documentaries about some of the real saints, the St. Francis's in Puerto Rico mm-hmm. who have taken dogs in, who have been abandoned and mistreated. Because the shelter situation, the municipal shelter situation, is not like it is in America, just like it isn't in Louisiana. In the less affluent parts of America, we have dogs running freely, dogs not spayed and neutered, dogs full of disease, dogs uh, reproducing randomly. They're not even community dogs. They're just throwaways. So it isn't particular to Puerto Rico, but, but I have sensed that in a couple of instances, some of the the wonderful rescues that bring Puerto Rican dogs into the U.S. for adoption and go through every possible legal and correct way of having them vaccinated and having them tested and making sure their health is 100 percent. There still seems yes. to be some bad feeling about that, like, well, why are we bringing dogs in from Puerto Rico? Who says that they don't have rabies? Well, because you can't really put a dog on an airplane in theory even a private airplane, many of these are private rescues, without having the dogs be vaccinated. At least that's the impression that I get, that those dogs coming in are probably safer than the many hundreds, probably thousands of dogs that come into the U.S. illegally, not through a legal channel. Thousands. I mean, all of you that have the very popular breed of the moment, whether it's a French bulldog or something else, you probably don't know that dog came in a truck or in a ferry or in in a cargo hold without documentation and having come from very bad background bad bad actors creating dealing with a market you know supply and demand seems to me the dogs yeah. in Puerto Rico the ones who were lucky enough to fall into the hands of rescuers their cleanliness and their safety and their good health is very important both in Puerto Rico and to come on to mainland U.S. I'm sure you you yourself must have given such kinds of certificates. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, according to the CDC, uh, like you, what you're talking, more than a million dogs are imported into the U.S. each year from foreign countries, yet less than 1% of these dogs are inspected for, for diseases like rabies, influenza, hepatitis, or distemper. You know, the pets that go to, from Puerto Rico to the U.S., they are uh, checked by veterinarians that have to be uh, accredited by the United States uh, Department right. of Agriculture. We have to get every three years. We have to reaccredit and go through all wow. the testing, and 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 you know, so everybody has. Uh, it's the same, you know, as any veterinary in the U.S. In order for us to give a health certificate, you have to have that USDA accreditation. If not, you can't give it. So animals coming from Puerto Rico are all checked by accredited veterinarians in order to get the health certificate, uh, which is now, you know, it, it, it's, it's more stringent, uh, and now we have to do it online, and, and everything is checked. You know, uh, those certificates for any little small detail that, you know, maybe a date of the rabies uh, doesn't go accordingly to the certificate that you attach, and they'll reject it. So, you know, th- there's very stringent uh, requirements that, that we have to follow in order to bring pets from Puerto Rico to, to the mainland U.S. So, yes, you are completely right. Uh, I think it's a little misunderstanding, and they think we, we don't have the same requirements, but no. Uh, the requirements here are, are just as in any other state, and, and they're more stringent, definitely. And that's why I am a big supporter of the Healthy Dog Importation Act, because we know uh, the USDA and other federal agencies need additional resources to monitor that's right. and safeguard the, the health of dogs being brought into, into the U.S. from some of those countries that you mentioned at the beginning of the interview. And, and it says U.S. ports of entry, and I know that entire truckloads, probably plane loads, cargo plane loads of, of purebred puppies from dubious backgrounds go into Canada 
They certainly Correct. on the on the mainland of Europe, they they go into England from all over Eastern Europe. Whether it's a pug or a French bulldog or whatever, again, is the trendy, most sought after dog of the moment. And you can, you know there aren't enough people that have the job of checking the paperwork. They don't even check what's in the back of the truck. They don't. In fact, there's some rule. I forget what it is. Something like you can only have 19 dogs in a crate or 19 dogs in a truck. I may have the number wrong, but it's something quite particular like that. So that's yes, what they, they do. do. I can't remember the number either, but there is, there is right? a, a limit. Yeah, right. Yes, and so if you, you have that number, you can go from Poland or Eastern Europe or anywhere, Belarus, cross the border, take a ferry, whatever it does to go into, into Great Britain, then go back again, bring another 19 or whatever the magic number is. But the dogs aren't healthy and they don't have a certificate. I wonder if you, if what you think as now the president of the AVMA about the fact that there are rescues that do transport within the United States from state to state. And my understanding is that you can't do that without the proper paperwork. In fact, somebody I, – I have Saving Senior Dogs Week as the, the national beneficiary of the Dog Film Festival – this year, for the whole year, for the premieres in October, but then all through into 2022. And she said, oh, yeah, I want to do that. I, I got a new car and I want to drive across America and do transport. You know, I'll go to, I don't know, pick Louisiana and I'll drive those car dogs to Massachusetts. People seem to think you can just do that. Is it not true that between states we're trying to be very careful about canine health also, which also means human health? You are completely correct, and especially when you're traveling from further distances where you could go, you know, in the west side of the U.S., where there might be something that they don't see in the east coast or vice versa, and we want to be very careful. For example, let's say Lyme disease, that's yes. very, very, yes. very common on the east coast. We we, we got to be really careful with, with pets going from the east to the west and having ticks and bringing Lyme to that's the right. coast. Yes, there is. You're completely correct. You have to have a health certificate, uh, and there's different requirements depending on which states you're going to. Uh, now, with the new system uh, that we have uh, of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, we go into the webpage uh, for ACES, for the Animal Inspection Service, and there we can find out the specific requirements for each state, what they require, which type of health certificate they, they require. There's the, there's the 7001 form, that's the one we used to use for years, but no, some, some states now, now require what we call a CVI, which is a Certificate of Veterinary Inspection. Wow. And it's different, and it has to be filled online through a, a company that, that, the, that the government you know, uses. You have different choices, and, and each veterinary hospital can choose which one they work with. But yes, that's something that we, we have to, 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 to do, and it, it is required. Yeah, there, there's definitely that misconception that if you're just going in, the, in a car or, or a car or a U-Haul or whatever, from right. a, a moving from a state to another, you don't need any documentation. No, that's completely wrong. You need to have the vaccines up to date. You need to have a health certificate in many of those instances. And some states will require even vaccination for certain things that might not be common in your state. So sometimes, you know, I've had animals that had to be uh, vaccinated against Lyme. So there, really? is, there, 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 there are strict. recommendations. Yeah, yeah. There are recommendations and there are also, you know, requirements. Uh, some state might, might ask you to, to, to take the animal once 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 it goes to the new state to visit the veterinarian right away and get that line, line shot. You know, it all depends. But, but the, the good thing is now everything is connected through, through this page that the USDA has, and we can find out exactly what the requirements are so we can uh, meet those requirements and, and, and make sure we – at the end of the day, we're, we're – uh, protecting animal, animal and public health, and that's what it's all about. We don't want to bring diseases from one state to the other or from a foreign country to, to, to the U.S. Uh, that can affect people and public health, you know. Definitely. Diseases like, a, like rabies, we know they're mortal, and we don't want to bring cases of rabies. We, we have canine rabies is in their control in the U.S. We have other types of rabies, you know, the raccoon rabies here in Puerto Rico. Uh, we have the mongoose rabies. Uh, wow. Wow. But the canine rabies is under control in the U.S., and it doesn't exist, but we know it, it exists in many countries in the world, and we don't want to bring that into, into the U.S. because it could, be, it could be deadly and it could affect human health, too. 
Right. And and deadly to the dogs that are there. I mean, all it takes is a drop of saliva, apparently, if it hits a mucous membrane yeah. or an open wound. And I, I think, or, yeah, yeah, and, and I mean, it's, it's, we don't, there's so many diseases in the United States that we're not aware of, whether it's human diseases like polio or smallpox that, you know, wipe out entire populations. And the same thing with dogs. We aren't familiar with it because vaccination has been done so well in this country. But then people, Correct. if they have never seen the horrors of puppies die of parvo or dogs get deadly ill from leptospirosis, they it's very hard to conceptualize risk when you don't see yes. it every day and you live in a place like Puerto Rico or other places where there are so many loose dogs and you do see dogs covered in mange and very sick because there isn't anyone looking after them. But all you have to do is bring one of those dogs from a, a place where the problem exists. I mean, there was, there's a lot of dogs being brought into the West Coast, the San Francisco area from Taiwan. The rescues there have been doing it for decades since I wrote the Dog Bible. I was like, what? Yep. They are flying dogs in from Ta the street dogs from Taiwan into San Francisco Bay? There are really a lot of dogs there already need some homes. But there was no oversight in the health of those dogs. We're talking, you know, the, I don't know, the year 2000 or something. And now it's really important that this, this act be supported by people. And I guess we could also say, Dr. Arce, that people, when they're going to adopt or buy or foster a dog coming from outside the, the, the boundaries of their state, not just their country, you really should see that paperwork because otherwise you're part of the problem. Oh, it's okay. It's just this one little dog. I know the people who brought it. That's not going to solve a problem, which is that everybody needs to look after everybody else's health. I mean, we know this from COVID. In the animal kingdom, you doctors have known this forever. It's always been an issue. Herd immunity or herd susceptibility, right? Correct, correct. And, you know, and that's why we're a big supporter. AVMA is a strong supporter of the Healthy Dog Importation Act. You know, uh, we, we have to, to, to give more uh, support to, to the USDA and, you know, to the, the Animal and Plant Health Inspection Service, CDC, the Border Patrols. And, and this will, will create like a sort of like an electronic database uh, where all the import permits and everything would, would be there so we could help ensure that the federal government is properly screening every dog that comes into the U.S. And that way we're going to reduce the, the risk of importing dogs that may spread infectious diseases that could be even deadly for Absolutely. animals or people. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate your time in talking about this. Congratulations again about being the president-elect of the AVMA. It is a great honor, and it's wonderful to have the beautiful state of Puerto Rico well represented by such a wonderful pair of veterinarians, you and your wife. So keep up the great Thank work you. you're Thank doing there. Hope I get a chance to meet you at some veterinary conference one day. You're, you're obviously a, so. a passionate believer in, in doing things well and doing them right. Thank you so much, Dr. Arce. Thank you. And thank you for what you do, too. And because you also make a difference with, with this program and, and, and you know, with, the, with what you talk about and, and, and it makes people aware of, of, of important things in, of animal care. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.